pondered what Jesus did while he was here on earth. On that day-to-day, sort of week-to-week basis while he was uh, living here, I think some imagine that he traveled the countryside in a tour bus, sort of like a politician going to Iowa, doing his stump speech everywhere. Or maybe he went around setting up mobile health clinics, uh, moving from town to town, healing people from dawn until dusk. Or you might imagine that he was like a a first-century equivalent of Garrison Keillor, telling his little Lake Wolbegon or Lake Galilee stories everywhere that he went. In some ways, Jesus did all three, but the truth is that he spent most of his time in conversation conversations with people about life and faith. So maybe in some ways he would have been more like an Oprah or Ellen, asking questions and listening, and with compassion and wisdom, sharing insights that he had as he, that, that those he talked with found so useful that eventually they told others what he had told them and wrote them down. During the season of Lent, the six-week period that lasts from now until April when we come to Easter Sunday, We're going to look at nine conversations, nine different conversations that Jesus had during his time here on earth. We're going to listen into both sides and imagine what it would have been like to listen in live during these conversations as they unfolded. And the first of these conversations, though, may surprise you because it's not a conversation with a human being, but a conversation that Jesus had with Satan, which raises a question, how in the world do we even know about this? And the answer is, if you just think about it for a little while, that Jesus told his disciples sometime later about the nature of this conversation. Now, the story is in Luke's biography of Jesus. It begins in chapter 4, verse 1, and if you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1564, page 1564, although the words will also be on the screen. The beginning, it says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now, to say Jesus was hungry here, by the way, is an understatement, because 40 days is about the longest a human being can live without food. So when Satan arrives, Jesus is at the absolute limit of his physical strength. He's hungry beyond anything that any of us have ever experienced. In some ways, you know that Jesus isn't like us, because he was the Son of God. But the message of Christmas is that Jesus came in and limited himself to the form of a human being, like us. And that means that, like us, he got sleepy, hungry, and thirsty. That meant that in Jesus, we have someone who understands our own human experience, which led one of the writers of the New Testament later to say that even Jesus, or Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Satan tries to get at Jesus here when he's at his weakest. Years ago, someone shared with me the acronym HALT. It stands for Hungry, Angry, Lonely, and Tired. And it's to describe the times when we are most susceptible to temptation, times when we need to be especially vigilant. And it's at just such a time that Satan decided to test Jesus. Not on day one, day 20, or even day 35, but on day 40 of this fast in the desert. The word tempt here actually has two meanings that are woven together. One is to tempt or to entice someone to do something wrong or to sin, but it can also mean to test. That is to test like in an exam. And here it's providing Jesus with an opportunity to prove his loyalty to God. Now we want to be clear here that God never tempts us, only Satan tempts. But if we let God, he will use the experiences that we have of temptation to enable us to prove our faith and to grow our character. And it's an opportunity for us to let 
others know that we trust God. John Newton, who some of you may know as the author of the words of the hymn Amazing Grace, once wrote to a young man who was struggling with temptation, and he said this to him. He said that any time that Satan tempted this young man, he was to pray because he said if Satan sees that his temptations drive you to prayer, he'll probably stop rather than being the occasion of doing you so much good. In other words, if he sees that every time I tempt you, you pray, and it leads you closer to God, I'm going to stop tempting you because I'm going to do you more good than harm. Now, I know that many today don't believe in Satan, in a literal devil. And sure, some admit people do bad things, but Satan has to just be a mythological figure. So are they right? Well, let's just look for a moment at the evidence. If you're not sure about a literal devil, let me just suggest that you watch the evening news or go online and read your favorite news source for a few days and then tell me what you think. I think you'll see that the evil in the world is much more than the sum total of a few bad decisions that people make in a given day. The longer I live, the more convinced I am that there is a spiritual power that has its grip on people and institutions in our society. That evil is real. That Satan is alive and well. That he's not an abstraction. The Bible tells us that he's a created being, created by God, who rebelled against God and has become a powerful force at work in our world. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, later reflected this way. He said, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. Satan's our enemy, so we can't treat evil casually, dismiss it as harmless fun. The evil Satan encourages is destructive and leaves harm in its wake wherever it goes. The conversation that we're looking at today with Jesus happened at the beginning of his career, just as he was beginning a public ministry, just as he gets started, getting started on the mission that God had for him. Satan tries to distract him to see if he can get in Jesus' head and get him off track. And here's how he starts with the first of three temptations. This time, the first one is the temptation to selfishness. Verse 3, it says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, we know that Jesus could have done this miracle because later he would feed 5,000 and then even later 4,000. But we know that this isn't something that God wanted him to do here. Now, you might ask, what's the harm? After all, Jesus is pretty hungry. So why would it have been wrong for him to just whip up a little snack? But what Satan is suggesting here is that Jesus use his power selfishly and also that he prioritize his physical needs over his spiritual needs. Rather than trust God, he's tempting Jesus to take matters into his own hands. Now, know that God had promised to take care of Jesus just as he promises to take care of us. And even though Jesus could have met his need on his own here, he knew that what God wanted was for him to wait, to depend on God and his timing. And we need to do the same, but it's hard to wait on God, isn't it? To trust him to meet our needs. The longer we wait or the more that we want something, the more likely it is and tempting it is to take matters into our own hands. It's easy to become impatient and get busy when God is asking us to wait. So you may want to get married. And you get impatient only to regret later a decision that you made because you were impatient. Or you want a new house or a car or a pair of skis, and rather than save and wait, you decide to spend the money now, to borrow the money that you don't have, to buy what, in essence, you probably don't really need. But Jesus doesn't fall for Satan's lie. Instead, he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus did need the bread, 
But he trusted God with his health for 40 days and he figured, I can wait a little bit longer. He told Satan that his biggest concern here wasn't a few slices of toast, but his relationship with God. Throughout Jesus' lifetime, he consistently communicated to those he taught that life is not solely or even primarily about our material needs. Instead, he made it clear it's more important to obey God, even if obedience means that we might miss a meal now and then. We need to know that God promises to take care of us, even when we can't see how that's possible. And we can rely on him without trying to manipulate things to get what we want. And most importantly, that our spiritual needs are more important than our physical needs. Years ago, I was with an older woman, and her oldest son was in a troubled marriage. She shared with me how deeply this grieved her and how hopeful she was um, that that couple might be able to reconcile. She had decided to devote her evenings to praying for them, and she did. She prayed not just well into the evening, but sometimes into the wee hours of the morning. And after several weeks, she was exhausted. But as she said to me, my need for God is greater than my need for sleep. Jesus put his full trust in God and made sure the spiritual took priority over the material. But Satan wasn't finished with Jesus because he tempted Jesus a second time, this time the temptation to compromise. It says the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, the Old Testament prophets had predicted that one day a Messiah would rule the world, and Satan is just simply offering Jesus a shortcut, a way to get there without the pain and suffering of the cross, and a way to get there faster, not to wait a few years, but to do it right now. So what, you might ask, is wrong with that? Just think of the good that Jesus could do if he were to take over right then, could have set up a kingdom mightier than that of the Romans, a government that would stop injustice, eliminate poverty, and drive out Israel's enemies, these hated Romans. And he could have done great good, but it would have meant compromise, using the world's methods to do what God wanted. And it would have come at a high price. In order to become king of the world, Jesus would have made, had to have made a deal with the devil. If you worship me, it will all be it's the temptation to compromise, to do what is expedient in the moment. And it required Jesus to make an alliance with evil, to abandon doing things God's way and do them Satan's instead. But Jesus wasn't having it, and he answered Satan bluntly, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. By the way, te technically, Satan's lying here. The world doesn't belong to him. But he does have sway over the hearts of some people. And through them, he controls many of the world's systems. He did then, and he does today. But the best that he could promise would be to make Jesus a political and military leader for a short time. What would you do if you knew that you could solve the problems that plague our world, but were required to use the world's methods of lies and deceptions, of bullying and power plays, to make compromises by abandoning part of God's agenda, maybe to care for the poor or protect the unborn, for goals that, while good, would be accomplished by using evil means. In short, to make a deal with the devil. Christian leaders sometimes make the mistake of thinking that as long as they're pursuing the right goal, the methods don't matter. That if they can just get the results, then what they do or who they are in private just isn't important. Whenever we equate a particular political or social agenda with God's will, there is a temptation to seize power by shortcuts 
to abandon our principles in order to remain relevant. When we do this, we're showing that we do not trust God. And when we fail to depend upon God or take matters into our own hands, we undercut the very purpose of our mission. And it's a deal that ultimately leads to ruin. We owe allegiance not to our cause, but to our God. There can be no compromises. Jesus knew the purpose and the way that God wanted him to go about accomplishing it. And he knew that his kingdom was not to be an earthly kingdom. He knew that his path to power was not through a political or military campaign. Instead, for him, the way up was down. His path would lead straight to the cross. And he would not worship Satan, even if to do so might bring good, good, great good for many in the moment. He could only worship God and trust that he would, in time, bring about the good that he had planned. Jesus trusted his heavenly Father. He knew that right is right and wrong is wrong. There can be no compromises, that the world's ways are not the ways of God. And one day Jesus would become the world's king, but he wouldn't get there through an exercise of power, but through humble service and suffering. We're well aware that we need to be on guard against being tempted by evil, but we also need to be aware that we, must be, we cannot be tempted by false motives of pursuing good purposes. We must be faithful to God both in the ends and the means. We're called to continue the work that Jesus first began here on earth, and we must do so doing God's will in God's way. We cannot accept Satan's help without seriously compromising what God has for us to do. So worship God alone. Do what, you, what he knows you know he wants you to do, and trust him, leaving the results in his hands. Louis XIV led an era of decadence in the country of France. Today we would say that Louis was a narcissist. Um, he nicknamed himself the Great. And during, uh, as he neared the end of life, he planned his funeral. And he gave instructions that the cathedral would be dimly lit. And to dramatize his greatness, there would only be one candle. That candle would be set over his golden coffin. Thousands watched in hushed silence as the presiding bishop rose to speak. And slowly he reached down and snuffed out the candle. And then with words that rang throughout that great cathedral, he said, only God is great. Satan's final temptation, temptation number three, is the temptation to popularity. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point in the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan takes Jesus up to a part of the temple that overlooked a deep valley. From there, it was about 450 feet to the ground, or about 45 stories. And so a fall from there would have meant certain death. But Satan knew the words of Psalm 91, which tell us that God's going to take care of us and promise even angelic protection. So he says to Jesus, if you're really the Son of God, then just jump. The angels will swoop in at the last moment and scoop you up. And Satan, in some ways, was right. If Jesus had done what he suggested, angels probably would have come at the last minute and saved him. But it's not what God wanted. Satan's, by the way, misusing the Bible here. God did inspire the words of Psalm 91 to give us the idea that we... But he didn't give it to us to, to tempt us to deliberately put ourselves in threatening situations. The psalm isn't giving us permission to be reckless or to take needless risks and expect that God will rescue us. So Jesus re refused Satan's suggestion. Jesus simply answered, It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Had Jesus fallen for this, it would have been a spectacular, but unfortunately pointless miracle. The sort that impresses but doesn't leave a lasting impression. Rather than an expression of trust in God, it would have been a foolish stunt. We cannot presume upon God, trotting him out like a party trick. It is not for us to put God to the test. Now, Jesus did do some spectacular things during his lifetime, but he never did them to call attention to himself. Instead, he did what he did to serve the needs of others. His miracles were motivated by love, not selfish ambition and vain conceit. He trusted God, but he did not use God to help him impress others with himself. We, too, can fall prey to the temptation to seek out the spectacular. But when we do, what we reveal is a lack of confidence in God. Had Jesus given in to Satan, he would have instantly have been the most popular person in Jerusalem. But the desire for spectacular things reveals our lack of confidence in God. We have to do things to wow people. We're showing a lack of faith in him. So what can we learn from this interesting and unusual conversation between Jesus and Satan? First, let me suggest that you don't have to give in. Jesus was determined to be faithful to God, but he didn't do it alone. He relied upon God's help. But here's some examples of how we, too, can rely upon God. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, tells us this. He says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So he tells us that the temptations that we experience are common. God, though, will not let us be tempted beyond what we're able to endure. But when we're tempted, provides us with a way that we can make it through it. Or think also of the words of James in James 4, 7, when he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's interesting, he sort of flips things from what you might expect. You might expect him to say, resist the devil, flee from him. What he's saying is that when we pursue God, that is the way that we resist the devil he will flee from us. And finally, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2.18. says, because he himself suffered, that's Jesus, when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So the very fact that Jesus, in this conversation with Satan, resisted each of the three temptations is the reason that we can put confidence in him to help us when we are tempted. So we need to remember that we do not have to give in. A second lesson for us is that the best answers to temptation come from the Bible. I don't know if you noticed, but each time that Jesus responded to Satan, he responded by quoting the Bible. And so the best way to defeat Satan's lives is to know what God's will is. And the way we know that is by reading the Bible. The best answers to life questions are in the Bible. That's why at City Church we encourage you regularly to try reading the Bible. We have some reading plans in the, in the lobby. You can pick one up and start even today. The more you know of the Bible, the better prepared you will be for Satan's temptations. A third suggestion is to think long-term. All three of these temptations have a common theme, and that is they're an attempt to distract and turn Jesus aside from the very things that God asked him to do. And Satan tries to do the same thing with us, to distract us from doing the things that God wants most for us to do. The strongest temptations aren't always the temptation to do something evil. Those things are clear, and if we choose to give in, we know exactly what we're doing. But the subtlest and strongest temptation is to do what we know to be good in the wrong way, to substitute the good for the best, to seek God's ends by means that compromise what we know to be true of what it is to be a godly person, to force God's hand by taking shortcuts to success, even success we know that might be consistent 
with God's purposes. God wants us to do his will, but he also wants us to do those things in his way. And to do this, we need to trust that God has a plan, that he will accomplish his purposes in our lives in his time. And so sometimes we need to think long term. And finally, we need to remain alert. You may have noticed in Jesus' conversation that he passed the test. But I want you to listen to what Jesus, what happened after Jesus wins this battle in verse 13. It says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. An opportune time means that Satan wasn't yet finished with Jesus. He would come back. And we know that he did, most famously, in the last week of Jesus' life. Again, all three of these temptations have a common theme, to distract and turn Jesus aside from the thing that God had for him to do. And Satan wants to do the same with us, to distract us from the thing that God wants for us to do. And what we need to do is to learn to distinguish between the voice of God, the voice of truth, and the voice of Satan, the father of lies. Be aware that Satan has plans to trip each one of us up. But like Jesus, we don't need to give in. While Satan's real, we do not need to fear him or give in. I don't know what your temptation is right now. It could be money or greed or sex or pride or power or popularity or self-pity. Each one of us will be tempted in an area that matters to us most. But what will we do when Satan comes for us? Commit now not to give in. Be prepared, think long-term, and remain alert. And know that the God who loves you will give you what you need to resist the temptations that come your way. And when you do, know that you have passed the test and proved faithful to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, Jesus shared this conversation with his disciples because there's so much here that's helpful for us. Helpful to be able to discern the things that you might come, that we might endure, we might experience as Satan, who's alive and well, may try to tempt us. Father, may we be people who uh, don't give in, who rely upon you, who trust you in the moment, and Father, wait for you to deliver us from the things that we experience. We pray this knowing that you're faithful to us. May we prove also faithful to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.